0: Do you have any questions this morning? I've
1: okay, got one about uh, knots, the hairy devil knot, you mentioned. and the analogy with this tangled itself. Um, what comes to mind for me is that, like a fishing line tangle, and to untangle it you don't want to pull it in, so you just kind of work it out. This so what's the analogy, just
0: to hold everything in a big spacious awareness and let it resolve itself? The question is about the not the hairy devil, but he sort of sees a knot as more like a fishing line tangle, where if he pulled the end, he'd be in big trouble <laughs> with a fishing line. So he's wondering if it's more opening up and let it let it just kind of untangle that way, if we open up our attention. Like, what is the analogy? Is that right? Yeah, Okay. The The analogy was to see if we can get out of the way so that the knots untangle themselves. And most of the practice is learning to get out of the way. Uh, and let the practice unfold on its own. That's the hardest thing for us to do. We tend to be getting into things and manipulating them out of aversion and attachment. And whenever we get into a body sensation or a thought or an emotion, if there's any aversion or attachment going on, we're reinforcing aversion and attachment. And in that way, the, the, the knot just gets more entangled out of that aversion and attachment so if one is um, trying to say if there's a body sensation in the body maybe it's an old chronic area and the mindfulness isn't there but our our attention is there with the intention to try to change it or to get rid of it in some way that's um, entangling the knot but if we go there with Mindfulness with the attitude of pure exploration, where there's just the intention to let it be, to explore it, to let it reveal itself, usually the knot untangles. Sometimes they take a long time. We might not notice any change for a long time, but that pure exploration lets it just happen in its own time. Within pure exploration, there's a lot of acceptance and non-identification. Mm-hmm. Could you say again? Um,
1: let's see. How about no self, self, the sense of self? How how it is we take um, an object, sensing it with consciousness, and turn that into a feeling of self
0: the question is how do we take an um, how do we perceive things in terms of um, self how do we make that happen we're talking about identification and so anytime say there's a um, right now we're all most of us are are our eyes are open, and there's seeing happening. There's a tendency for us to have the attention jump out of uh, this area, jump out, make, make a form out of the color. There's just this color and light and patterns of shapes here in seeing. We're very conditioned, very quickly, for the, for the attention to jump out and make something out of things. And if we don't notice that happening, if we don't notice that we're making something out of this just color and form, there's a tendency then to notice a Michelle out of this color and form. And then it could be that we make a person out of it, you know, much more strongly, I am me seeing, and that is you. You know, it's like this is a Steve, this is a pillow. We tend to form things, and even that isn't, isn't so um, solid as when we really identify with I am seeing. That's where, that's where it really gets into a separation. So with any sense door, if we're not aware how we're perceiving itself, we make a very separate world, whether it's a sound you know, say the sound of the heat we tend to think of it as outside of myself rather than just happening in this big field of life we can do it with thought, we can do it with body sensations Anytime we take the perception and turn it into something separate and solid. Say a thought. A thought. um, I love the sun. If we don't notice that the thought is just coming and going and, and there's no need to believe that thought as mine, we can just see that it's just one of these endless thoughts that go through the mind. But if we believe it, especially in New England, <laughs> we're bound to suffer. <laughs> 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 mm-hmm. a question of I and I. Pardon? A question of self. Mm-hmm. On meta things, but may I? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. The question is about in metta we have a phrase like may I be happy, Um, so what I is that? Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the wonderful things about doing the metta practice is that one starts to see that one's understanding of what one wishes will deepen and deepen and deepen, and that that phrase um, The first phrase that one is given traditionally is, may you or may I be safe and protected from inner and outer harm, for example. Um, If you really understand what you're wishing, you would wish uh, the person to deeply understand that there's no solid separate self, and that would be the protection. Being safe from inner harm means really understanding very deeply um, that any time we identify with a thought or a sound or a body sensation or you know, whatever, that we suffer. So one's wishing that person to really deeply understand and be safe. And when one wishes oneself happiness, it's the same thing, that one wishes oneself complete understanding. And out of that complete understanding is a complete peace or happiness. Of I is yeah, it's not that the that's. Be careful of trying to annihilate, annihilate the I. There's no. There was no I ten minutes ago, or like 10, twenty years ago, or fifty years ago, and there's no I, ten minutes from now, and the the I is a misperception. And all, any, moment, any moment when we're not seeing clearly, we usually identify, and that's when there's a sense of being a separate self. So it's just a, it's just a slight misperception. disturbance? Was it fear or uh, sadness or mm-hmm. In some ways compassion is a little more appropriate like when you hear the shots and there's that feeling of you know this world Everyone is eating each other, basically. You know, we're all, (laughs) whether we're vegetarian or not, if you just take one look outside, there's the beautiful birds, and there's that perspective of the beautiful birds. But if you look closely, you know, the robins are eating the worms. You know, there's two sides to life. There's the beauty and the suffering. Um, Hunting season really makes us aware of the situation and we can have the perspective that maybe we don't really need to be hunting and killing anymore but some people don't have that perspective holding all this in the context of suffering I think in terms of compassion is usually more helpful because one can have compassion for oneself in the, in the feelings of the sadness about it or the fear and one can have compassion for the animals, and one can have compassion for the people hunting. It's, it's like it's being able to take a whole view of it and see that it, one can hold it in the context of suffering. <coughs> also, bird season um, isn't usually as bad as deer season. <laughs> Just to warn you, so bird season sort of gets us prepared For deer season, it's more, usually more intense. Uh, And it's a great opportunity for all of us to practice compassion.
1: is either memory or just emotion.
0: The question is about when one feels confusion and there's emotion or memories coming up from the past and it's not really clear what's happening. Um, It sounds like compassion, again, might be the first step to see that one is confused and suffering. And the first thing I would do is try not to judge it and to feel any kind of care, care about the pain. You don't have to know what the pain is with compassion. It's just to have this um, attitude of surrounding yourself with care. You can care about the confusion. If, If mindfulness isn't possible at first or if there's a tightness around it, compassion helps soften one's relationship to whatever's happening, if it's suffering. Um, And then I think there's a certain point where if you feel soft around the pain, there's a way in which we can work with accepting it and allowing it, even if, again, we don't know what it is. It can still be confusion. And often, we can project fear or anger Onto anything, I mean, I, I have many times in my life uh, usually if I finally figure out if it 's anger or fear or sadness, whatever, I, sometimes I note oh it 's fear attack number two thousand two hundred and twenty two <laughs> in one day you know or it's ang- we, if that 's one of the beauties of being on retreat is just seeing how we can project fear onto anything or we can project anger onto anything. Uh, It's a humbling practice. Hopefully, you experience that humility in it all. Uh, So, just see if you can kind of, if you need to go to your room, if it feels like it's more appropriate for you to go to your room, just, it's okay. Just go to your room. If it feels like you can be here in the hall and work with it, uh, try it. You can try things, try different ways to work with it. Sometimes it's better to go outside and get some space and walk through it but remember that it's okay to be confused. And think that, um, if
1: there
0: that you would have to be more specific about what would precipitate it. Like a memory or? Something in the present Can you be more specific? It's kind of... Okay, you might bring it up with one of your teachers, because it's, it's like, it depends what it is, you know, if it was something that's happening all the time, like looking at the Buddha image, I don't think you'd want to avoid that all the time. But if it was something really difficult to work with, and it seemed like it was better to back off, that, it, it would be better to talk with one of your teachers. Have a good day. Any questions this morning? Actually, I am. Um, oh, the question. <laughs> the question was uh, when I was doing the metta practice, I found that myself was often the difficult person, so that when that was happening, I often switched the order, the traditional order. It depended whether I was sitting or walking. If I was walking, sometimes I would save food from my um, lunch or breakfast, and when I would start walking, I would send, I would throw food out, little crumbs out to the ants or the chipmunks, and I I would start by uh, sending metta to all the beings around me, walking, and that helped open up the space for me to do the metta for myself. So I often did that for five or ten minutes. Sometimes I would feed the birds. Uh, When I was sitting, uh, I started with a stuffed animal that I had. because it it was just what worked for me, you know I uh, had my little stuffed animal up on an altar, and I would send it to the stuffed animal, and then I would send it to myself and it <laughs> but for me to tell Upandita to that
1: <laughs>
0: i I skipped that part <laughs> in the West, I find that. Um, I recommend to people to start with really whatever is the easiest. And that's what I learned quite deeply in that practice and what moved me very deeply was that it's really gentle and you're meant to start with what's easy. So I notice in the West a lot of people start with their children, for example, if they have children, because that's easy for them. Or a lot of people have a deep connection with animals or birds. and. Whatever it is that's easy to start with that, some people, it's not human beings, and that's okay. If you can find a human being that is easy, then you start with that human being. And if oneself isn't easy, usually you start with the easy, so you can connect somehow with that feeling of unconditional love. It's just like holding a newborn, you know, that feeling for oneself or a feeling for another. Uh, So whatever helps you touch that open heartedness Yeah, the question is around um, if it's what happens if a lot of people come into mind when you're doing one person in the metta or uh, how useful is it to do different people within one category. If you're doing the metta, you know, day in and day out, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, it's quite different than if you're doing it five or ten minutes. Uh, Because if you're doing it five or ten minutes or a little bit each day, I think it you're not really trying to develop this deep concentration with it and it's fine to shift people more. If you're doing it in a long term way, it's usually helpful to stay with one person a lot at the beginning. For example, I stayed with what one would call the benefactor category, but I did a dear friend for a month. And sitting, walking, eating, you just do this one person as much as you can, and then you do yourself. You start with yourself at the beginning. Uh, Or I would play with that, but generally, uh, if you're walking, sitting, you you start with what's easy, then shift to that person. The reason for that is that the metta will develop so deeply uh, for that person and it's supposed to be easy. You have to remember that that's, this person's supposed to be easy. So that when you shift to the more difficult categories, and even dear friend is considered harder than the benefactor, friend is considered harder than dear friend, neutral's harder than that, difficult is difficult. Um, and you wait until the metta is developed quite strongly before you shift to any other category. Um, if you're doing it, you'll notice that a lot of stuff will come up uh, every for me with any person I did, every little nitpicking thing that ever happened <laughs> came up it's a it's another purification process and so when you when you hit any barrier meaning any aversion or desire or any hindrances come up, you shift back to the easy person, and by developing that it's incredibly powerful. I mean having, I think I did it six weeks in 1990, and that power of doing it for that person, still whenever I bring that person up, it's so strong. It's really easy to shift to anyone difficult. when when a lot of faces come in or different people come in uh you if you have enough concentration you can just send a bit of metta to them and then just go back to the person you're doing Um, there were times when i would feel guilty for not doing the people that would come to mind and i would kind of struggle if my concentration wasn't so good so then i would send a little bit more metta to those people it's almost like they wanted meta or something, mm-hmm. and I'd feel bad if I didn't send it, and I'd send a little more, and then I'd go back to the person. And if you can't um, stay with the one person, if it feels like another person comes in or being, it's really, you know, it's fine if you send metta to that person. It's like, you know, if you feel like there are, there are a kind of flood of images or another person calling, it's really nice to send metta. So I wouldn't feel like something's wrong <laughs> or you're doing it wrong if you do that. It's just the uh, practice of metta, doing it for anybody or any being. It's just a wonderful practice.
1: Some aren't they emotions as well, and we're cultivating those. I know this came up, but I didn't get it. Uh, who's feeling those feelings of Karuna? Mm-hmm. You know, I just don't know what that is.
0: The question is, uh, when one's doing them. Brahmaviharas. Who's feeling the metta? Who's feeling the karuna? Um, when we have an, an emotion like fear, we let them come and go. But in the brahmaviharas, um, who's feeling them? That's the question. There's so many levels to how the brahmaviharas are working. And so, if you take the relative level of you know being me being Michelle and being a separate mind and body, there's a way in which, say, if we just take meta, the meta is very healing. it's you know, it's like it's like it puts us back together in a in a way that's um, it's putting you back together out of love. So anywhere where we're fragmented. Especially, we tend to get fragmented around not being able to experience difficult emotions, and we tend to um, become unglued or too rigid. The Met. The Met. That broke from you last night. Pardon? That
1: broke from you last night, that Uh
0: huh. And then. The, there's many, there's, there's jhanic factors that happen in metta, so that, that one of them is tranquility. The, the akagata, the fifth jhanic factor. There's, there's happiness, sukha, that's the fourth. Rapture is the third. And then the aiming, the connecting, they're the first two. Um, see, in Vipassana practice, we're trying to relax enough to experience what's happening instead of being separate from the experience we're, we're going through a process of, of relaxing enough to what you would say get out of the way and become the experience the meta practice helps us to accept what's happening you know there's that relaxation there's that deep allowing um, some people find that easier than others. So, so the meta practice, as much as you need to bring it in to help soften and let the experience be. Because if we get very analytical about what's happening and you know, try to figure out who's experiencing fear from the outside, you know, or if we're trying to make uh, ourselves get rid of the fear or you know somehow get to the bottom of it all of that isn't really just letting it be it yeah yeah it works <laughs> uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I mean, in any moment, there's just what's happening. You know. And I think it's important to see that the Brahma Vihara's are very positive spiritual emotions. We don't have to then feel like we have to get rid of the other ones either. It's a matter, it's like out of the acceptance comes the ability to just see them clearly and see that they're just coming and going. Have a good day. (coughs) Any questions this morning? And the question is about metta jhana, and um, she understands the purposes of the purpose of saying the phrases and feeling the meaning right um, what one is being mindful in metta practice of is of metta and so you're developing mindfulness of metta as you say the phrases and understand the meaning of it the, the understanding of the metta keeps deepening and deepening and one can get absorbed into, the mind can get absorbed into that metta so the, the jhanas are getting deeper, more deeply absorbed into the metta in the metta practice the concentration um the different jhanic factors within a jhana uh, just imply the different kind of depth of absorption. So if you can say the phrases and understand the meaning, that's the beginning of the depth of the concentration. And then when that starts to get strong, there's usually some joy or piti. It's called piti in Pali. And then the, uh, the, there's a kind of sweetness a happiness that comes sukha, and then there are times when the mind becomes very quiet. That's called ikagata. Um, these 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 jhanic factors happen in vipassana as well as metta. So there's you know there's the getting absorbed in metta. There's the development of metta, which is one purpose, and then there's the d- uh, deepening of the concentration where these qualities of um, joy. Happiness and tranquility happen, and this happens in uh, vipassana as well as metta. So there's a lot of purposes. There's, a, you know, there's the understanding and meaning. There's the development of being able to feel boundless love uh, for oneself and others. There's joy, happiness, and tranquility. In the, in the metta practice, uh, when the concentration goes, the hindrances hit you. So it's a kind of heaven-hell practice. Uh, <laughs> that slight <laughs> problem with concentration practices is that when it goes, the hindrances hit you.
1: Yeah.
0: A little minor detail. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: um, two questions. What's ajana and how do you it when you're Ajana is just the mind gets absorbed in what's happening rather than noticing what's happening. You know, the mind instead of the mindfulness going towards the moment to moment experience, the mindfulness goes into the, you know, gets absorbed into the metta. You kind of ride it. You hold it. The difference between metta and vipassana is that in metta you're holding what's happening and in vipassana you're letting go. So they're very different practices. What was the second part? There was How how do you do metta when you're eating? When you're what? When you're eating. Eating. Um, How do you do metta when you're eating? You just, you know, you just bring your fork up. And you <laughs> say, may I be happy, or may you be happy. You know, and then chew, may I be happy, or may you be happy. You, the focus of the attention isn't on so much the uh, sensations of chewing or eating. The, sensa- the focus is much more on continuing to say the phrases or feeling the, uh, feeling the image or the feeling of a person. So the focus isn't so much on your moment-to-moment experience but on on the metta. You can eat more when you do metta practice. (laughs) (laughs) When I
1: do metta practice, And I'm imagining, for example, a neutral person or whomever. uh, Do I say, may you, to this mental image, be happy, be safe, or do I say, may he be happy? As though the blessing Mm -hmm. is coming in a more cosmic way, and I'm wishing the blessing, or am I giving the blessing
0: I would go with whatever works for you in terms of connecting. Most people will tend to say, may you, because it'll be feeling of um, giving. Um, Sometimes the concentration will get so strong that the boundary between you and that person will disappear. And it'll feel like you're you're saying, may you be happy, but it's like a very deep feeling. And there's no sense of a giver or receiver. There's just the meta. Uh, so you can say may he or may you, depending on what helps you connect that to that person. What's rapid noting? Pardon? Rapid noting? What is rapid noting? Yeah. Um, is there any context for this like? Um like
1: uh Up and this broken that you're able to be aware
0: of um uh, sensations or coming and going in nanoseconds and in a very high speed. Mm-hmm. Steve said to stop reading, (laughs) right, it's a memory, I know. Um, The first characteristic of existence, anicca, impermanence, uh, the velocity at which uh, our moment to moment experience is changing is extraordinary. And there are times when you're sitting where one will start to notice if you let go of control, you know, let go of control of the anchor, and you just notice what's happening. It, it, sound, thought, body sensations, they're, they're happening very, very quickly. And so the attention can get um, more and more awake as you practice. And there'll be times where it'll feel like many, many, there are many, many notings. Uh, it, you can think of noting as noticing. You'll notice many, many uh, different objects of attention happening, whether it's knowing, whether you're knowing, if the focus is more knowing what's happening, where the object is appearing and disappearing very quickly, but there's a lot of, ch- the experience is one of rapid change. Sometimes it'll feel like things really slow down. Sometimes it'll feel like things really um, get fast. If you just even try to notice how quickly thoughts happen, you'll get a sense of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the question is, how do you? What's a skillful way to deal with non-interest? It's so wonderful to be able to um, let that be okay. There's a, you know, there's a way in which, you know, we can be um, go through different landscapes on the retreat, and one of the landscapes that we have to deal with as human beings is Boredom or not having interest, and I, I, it's really connected to energy. And so, if the energy is low, there's usually much less interest in what's happening. And it's okay. There's a way in which you can um, keep going. You know, I learned to, in my practice to keep going no matter what. There's, but you can do it in a way that, if you're okay with it, there's no problem. You know, it's just. I call it the boredom place or the not being interested place. And you kind of pull in and you just go along, or you go outside more and walk. And there's a way in which you wait, you can wait through these periods. You can try to apply effort. You know, you can really, as you're walking, you can see if you can look more closely. You can, you can call up things like knowing that you're going to die any moment. Or You know, there's ways in which you can call up um, energy, but if it doesn't come then equanimity, being okay with how it is, is really important. And if you don't fight it and try to force anything and just go through it, the energy will come up and then you'll be interested again if we have a lot of aversion or resistance to it, the energy just tends to go down lower. And then we tend to judge ourselves, and self-hatred comes, and doubt, and there's a whole slew of hindrances that come around low energy and not being interested. I mean, I used to pick up a whip and just whip myself and say, work harder, work harder, work harder, until there'd be this huge pool of blood around me, and I'd hate myself because I took it personally. You know, so that was a, a landscape that I felt that I got to know very well. And when I noticed it coming, I'd say, okay, wait a minute, I don't have to hurt myself here. I can just go through it. In some ways, once you get used to it, it's, it's not so painful. It's much less painful than, you know, an aversion attack. The other aspect of this is that we tend to be intensity junkies and in some ways an aversion attack is, is, you know, it's much more intense than boredom and we tend to go for it more. So boredom is kind of quiet and soft and if you can get into that soft quietness you might find that it's pleasant and that you start to be interested in it. (laughs) Um, list other ways to bring up energy. The walking meditation. Um, every time I came into Upandita, and he, if I wasn't doing the three speeds of walking, uh, he would always say he always knew somehow by the way I reported. He'd say, "You're not doing the walking right," and he'd be totally disgusted, you know, and he'd say, "Go," you know, and he he was right. Uh, and, and if one's energy, the balance of energies off, I often find that the three speeds, because they do different things, they balance different factors, if something's off, usually the energy will balance. Maybe not in a day, but over time, the energy tends to d- balance if you do the faster speed, the medium speed, and the slow speed. Uh, and then, you know, Sometimes remembering a time in practice where the energy was, was, you know, remembering kind of good times in practice sometimes opens up in anything that you can do to open up the mind and bring some energy, staring, and the old, the old ways were to uh, stare at light, whether it's moonlight, you know, or if something bright. Uh, and I think Steve's going to talk about energy tonight, so I'm sure he's going to come up with a long list (laughs) I'm not going to say that (laughs) Um, there's just two short announcements which you'll hear over and over again are there any questions this morning The question is, what phrases, metaphrases would you send to someone who's no longer living? Whatever ones you connect with, with that person, you know. Um, I think the traditional ones, uh, you might leave out strong and healthy of body. If you, and, you know, it just depends on if you're sending it to the person as they're incarnated or as you remember them you know because they'll be in some other form in the, in the present moment they're in some other form so you can either send the metta to them uh, without kind of an image but just sending it out to wherever they are and wish them well wherever they are or sometimes you can just remember their image and send it to that, that feeling of that person I think the words aren't as important as sort of the, the feeling that you're getting across.
1: Mm-hmm. in 20 minutes I'm going to sit with Carol and uh, I'm really concerned because I can't really do that well. And yet my sitting seemed like moment to moment I was able to follow mm-hmm. a good number of where the mind is going. <coughs> synoptically I can't do it
0: mm-hmm. the question is around um, being able to remember his experience and be able to describe it or report it in an interview. Uh, and he's wondering if the mindfulness is the same as that ability to remember and describe uh, the experience. I think I would put most of your effort into the mindfulness meaning that you really try to uh, Work with in your, in your sittings, walkings as best you can, um, remembering to be here, keeping it simple. Uh, and then I would take about five minutes of a sitting and five minutes of a walking a day and see if you can remember that and describe it. Just keep, even if five minutes is long, you might start with one minute. Uh, and it could be the last minute of your sitting so that you don't have to remember to <laughs> too hard. It's an art to remember to describe it. You know, I remember when I first started working with Upandita that uh, it was a whole other kind of experience to try to remember my experience and describe it. It's a great tool but I, I don't think it's so good to try to do that all day. I would just take a very small part of a sitting or a very small part of a walking and then see if you can remember it. And I found that that practice of remembering kept building. You know, I just try, I'd start small. And um, it just kept my ability to remember kept getting better as I, as I did bit by bit. But you do have to have that intention. You can have a sitting and be very mindful and not particularly remember. Uh, you do have to have that intention in, to remember. So
1: different
0: It's more like, I think it just adds another pitch of presence to remember. That's why I found it, help, it, in a way I found it helpful, but it can be too much pressure. You know, so it's finding that balance of finding it it useful, uh, but not adding too much pressure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would it be
1: worth, in terms of remembering, um, you know, three minutes before the end of the sitting to to watch for a minute, and then in the last minute of the sitting, go back and try to recall, you know, and then just before the interview, go back and try to recall again each time, kind of burn it into your memory a little more. Uh
0: Look, uh, the question, I hope you all heard the question because I'm not sure Uh, I can... Right, right. uh, There's something different that happens when you try uh, to remember a bit of a sitting than just going in and reporting, you know, for whatever. There is a difference, uh, and I would suggest that you do whatever has the least amount of pressure for you. So if it felt like too overwhelming to... I wouldn't try to do it every sitting. It's too much or every walking. I would just try to do a little bit of a fairly clear sitting or a fairly clear walking in a day. Uh, One of the ways that that helps is because um, one really sees the difference between any conceptual or interpretations we're making about the experience and the actual experience. It's very useful for that little bit of time to try to do that. It helps the practice the rest of the day. But also to try to remember all day will just, it'll get in the way of your experience. That's where you have to find that fine line. Uh, And just a little bit of this goes a long way just you know try to try to just a little do a little bit and then drop it I don't think you can uh, waste your time in an interview if you go in, you know, with the sincerity and humility. And if you don't, if you don't feel like you can do this part, particular way of reporting, just just go in and you know, say, just say whatever has been happening as best you can. You know, it's it's just because it's such a long day, and you'll find as the retreat goes on, there's there's a lot that happens. So it does help to kind of edit it into something uh, that you can talk about. Uh, but I've, I did a lot of practice before I ever tried to do that style of reporting for ten years. <clears throat> and I think that you can make use of the interview just by being honest. It, the most important thing is to be honest with what's happening. That's, that's hard enough. <laughs> Have a good day.